I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To help us get to the truth of the matter today about our migration crisis in the United States, we have with us Marty Flax, who is the director of our Human Rights Initiative at CSIS. And we have with us Errol Yebrook, who is a senior fellow in the International Security Program and also director of our Project on Fragility and Mobility. Welcome to you both, colleagues. Um, This is a critical issue that we've seen lately in the news, but also this is something that you all are studying in the long term, in the aggregate. So while I want to talk about the Haitian crisis that we just experienced at the southern border, I also want to ask you guys about the larger picture here. So first, Marty, can you describe what the events that led to the Haitian migration crisis and where we are with that now? Sure. So the Haitian crisis in our border is part of a larger immigration situation that we've faced increasingly over the past several years, where we've seen large numbers of migrants coming from largely Latin America, but also the Caribbean and other places who are fleeing a range of challenges in their home country. In the case of Haiti, it was extreme political instability as a result of the assassination of their president, as well as natural disasters. In Central America, we see very high levels of crime and very high levels of poverty that are driving people to move when they see lack of opportunity and they don't feel safe in their home country. And that results in a very large number of people coming to the United States to seek opportunities and to to seek a better life. And the Biden administration inherited a very large migrate movement of people across the border that we've seen over the last five or six years in particular, as well as an immigration system that frankly wasn't prepared to deal with that volume of cases. And that resulted in what we saw on the news, which is tens of thousands of people essentially camped out on the border without shelter, without adequate support, and without an immigration system prepared to process them humanely and in a human rights respecting manner. Now, of course, we saw the horrific images of U.S. border agents using hostile and violent tactics um, against Haitians. And those actions were depicted by, you know, Vice President Harris, and who, who said it was horrible, and, and DHS Secretary Mayorkas, who said he was horrified. Where did that all come from? And and how did we find ourselves in a situation where our government was treating people so inhumanely because it wasn't just those images of course they were dealing with one meal a day prison type conditions not sanitary it, it just didn't feel like the united states at all it it was really heartbreaking to see those images and those images brought home larger challenges in our immigration and asylum system we've seen a system that has not been prepared to humanely care for the number of people coming across the border for years we have had to detain large numbers of migrants in conditions that are um extremely inappropriate of course we all remember the family separation and child separation policy that was implemented under the Trump administration and we've seen you know the border control customs and border protection agents whose job it is to do law enforcement responsible for taking care of migrants you know that's not their primary mission as an organization and you know when you put law enforcement in that situation unfortunately you do sometimes see abuses happen but those images while they were extremely 
graphic and extremely heartbreaking um, of the camps, I think were only a small part of the, the more concerning part of the story, which is how we processed and treated those migrants once they came into the United States. So the fact that we didn't really properly give them a chance to express their fear of going home and process their potential asylum claims and, and the right to stay in the United States, but moved very quickly to expel them under, under some very questionable legal authorities. Errol, you're studying this really closely. You've been on Clubhouse and other places talking about this issue. We seem to be, you know, it's out of the news now. There aren't the images down at the southern border. And let's face it, you know, one of the things that keeps, you know, stories like this in the news are images. Where are we now? What's the bigger picture here? The bigger picture is that, I mean, the Haitians, they were always going to be a, a small portion of the overall story. If you think about Marty described the situation with the Haitians really well, and is sort of 15,000-ish people, again, very visually living under bridges with no support and lack of humanitarian aid and meals, etc. But if you think about 15,000 in the context of the monthly figures that of people coming, Basically, in July and August, there were over 200,000 people per month attempting to come into the United States. And that's a, that's a really high number in real terms. It's high relative to recent history. And so the, the Haitians are, you're right, that the images, especially the images of people on horseback trying to, to keep back migrants um, are very visceral they get clicks. People are very interested in them. But I think what, and I'm glad that you're doing this episode now, Andrew, because I think people tend to forget that there is just sort of a larger ongoing issue at the border. This is, and, and getting back to your question to Marty before, it wasn't just about family separation in the last administration. It was, you had an administration that was saying the quiet part out loud about when people who were tasked with protecting the border, they were basically giving them carte blanche to do whatever they thought was necessary, including doing things that were against national and international law. They were the the Trump administration and the president himself was basically saying that, you know, we will protect you, et cetera. So when you come to a Biden Harris administration, you have to think about it. It's not actually different people. Yet. And, and so these are people who have a culture of impunity. Meaning that the bureaucracy hasn't been replaced? Is that what do you mean, different people? I mean, yeah, in any given change of administration, I'm sure your listeners will know there, there are some people that change, but a vast majority of people who work for the US government don't change right. when there's a change in president and when there's a change in party. And so You've got kind of the, the Border Patrol agents, many of whom I'm sure were, were recruited under the Trump administration, who have come in with kind of a certain way of operating. And just because we have Alejandro Mayorkas and just because we have, you know, an administration that, that at least at sort of verbal levels from the White House press secretary podium are talking about protection of human rights and stuff, that takes a while to trickle down, especially when you don't have the political leadership in place. Andrew, we have had an acting Customs and Border Patrol commissioner and deputy commissioner for months. We don't have 
confirmed political appointees across the Department of Homeland Security, which is the main agency responsible for this stuff. And so it's hard to change a culture when you've got a bunch of vacant positions and acting positions. And these positions have not been confirmed because they're held up in the Senate or because the administration's having a problem getting nominations to the Senate, or is it a combination of both? I think it's a combination of both, and I'd welcome Marty's take on this too, but but I think the the CBP commissioner post is there has been a nomination. It's the Tucson police chief, Chris Magnus, has been nominated. Two weeks ago, there was some talk of, oh, his nomination is moving forward. I haven't seen anything on it. I haven't seen a hearing scheduled. And so I, I think it's pretty rich for, for politicians in D.C. to talk about how there's a crisis at the border. The Biden-Harris administration needs to do something, but then their people are not in place to be able to do that yet. And so, yeah, I think the Senate is holding up a lot of these. I do think that there are more nominations that that need to happen, but I, I think it's mainly the same thing that we're seeing with, we only have two confirmed ambassadors. You know, the, these are just a whole bunch of nominations being held up by the Senate. And, and this is part of the repercussions of that. Marty, what's your take? I just wanted to add a, a point to what Errol's talking about in terms of capacity as well, because in addition to personnel not turning over, we also have an extremely understaffed Department of Homeland Security and a, a caseload that has risen that at a rate that has far outpaced the ability of staff to actually process. So way back in 2006, 2007, I was briefly an asylum officer and, and briefly did some some credible fear interviews on the border. And, and that year, there were probably something like 5,000 credible fear cases, which are people who come over who specifically are seeking asylum because of a fear of being persecuted in their home country. You fast forward to GAO reported in, in 2014, there were 56,000 of those cases, so a tenfold increase. And in, in 2019, there were over 100,000 of those cases, so it doubled in five years. The number of asylum officers processing those claims have not risen at nearly the rate of those applications. And so there just isn't the capacity to keep up with the demand for processing, which is one of the reasons that people get stuck in detention facilities for extended periods of time or are released because det detention facilities are full and then we have to spend resources trying to make sure they show up for their immigration hearing. So it was really welcomed to see the Biden administration announce in August probably partially in response to some of this controversy that we're talking about, some plans to invest in the asylum officer corps to more than double the number of asylum officers that they plan to deploy. We need Congress to fund that. They can fund it through increasing immigration fees, but that puts the burden on the wrong people to pay for this. And so we would much rather have Congress budget for those asylum officer positions as well as their proposal to give asylum officers more authority to process these applications more quickly, to move people who legitimately are afraid to go home and have a valid claim to asylum in the United States, to get them through the system, to get them out of detention, to get them work authorization, both for their own benefit and to, to free up capacity in the U.S. government to help other people. Back to the Haitian case, Marty and Errol, the Biden administration has responded by using a Trump-era COVID policy to deport Haitians back to Port-au-Prince. And this policy, you know, allows border authorities to, quote, swiftly remove migrants apprehended at the U.S.-Mexico border. Why hasn't the Biden administration, in your view, 
reformed our border policies to not have to use a policy that they seemingly disagree with? I think it's an excellent question, Andrew. I I think the the easy answer is there's only so much they can do through executive action. And, and a lot of the resourcing challenges that Marty talked about are not actually, they need congressional approval, whether through the budget process or through, dare I say, comprehensive immigration reform. When people talk about immigration reform in the United States, a lot of the challenges that we've been talking about in this conversation would ultimately be addressed. They wouldn't be addressed in ways that make everybody happy. And this is certainly one of the most politically divisive issues of our time. And and so I don't think that any of this is particularly easy, but I do think that the Biden-Harris administration is, is limited in what they can do through just executive action. So take the process that Marty just talked about with, with asylum. Of the 200-something thousand people attempting to cross per month, not all of those are going to qualify. In, in fact, very few of those people are going to have those credible fear evidence that, that Marty talked about. And so we just don't have the, the proper allocation of resources. We, we have, over the last five years, we have plussed up the Border Patrol agent budget pretty extremely without doing the commensurate increases in things like asylum processing or visa checking or you know providing support to to migrants in mexico it's it's sort of been a remain in mexico and good luck policy as opposed to some sort of protection of human rights and and provision of of humanitarian assistance and and i think there's an element here that we haven't talked about andrew that i think is really important to talk about. So the crisis is near term, right? Like when you see Haitians under a bridge, it's visceral, you pay attention to it. But I think the harder question is why people are coming and what can we do about it? And a couple of months ago, the Biden-Harris administration put out a root causes strategy, a strategy to address the root causes of migration from Central America, not Haiti, but from Central America, which is still a vast majority of people coming up. And so I think that's it's a strategy that is, I think, quite good on, on its merits. It's just going to take a really long time to address root causes of migration, which are related to the root causes of just general fragility in these places. It's corruption. It's, you know, security actor malfeasance. It's climate change. It's all these things that are not changed overnight. And, and what we're seeing is it coming to a head at the border. But you, you can't just have a response position, which is what we've had for my entire professional career. We've had an immigration system that has been responsive as opposed to proactive. Marty, what's your take? Yeah, I, I certainly agree with Errol's last point that we need a more proactive strategy. And I also welcome that effort to really get at the root causes of migration. I am probably less forgiving than Errol on the policy front. I find it incredibly disappointing and disturbing, frankly, that the administration is still relying on a policy of, of deportation without due process, without any kind of process that on public health grounds that public health experts don't feel is necessary and didn't feel was necessary when the Trump administration adopted it. I think they're moving, they moved so fast to deport these Haitians, many of them back to Haiti without realizing or processing that many of those individuals hadn't lived in Haiti in years. They were coming from Chile or Colombia or Brazil, and they've been deported to a country that they, that they haven't lived in at a time when the country cannot support them. And so 
I think we're shooting ourselves in the foot when we try and have a strategy to address root causes of migration and then introduce our through our own action further instability and further stress on those very countries that we're trying to support. So I, I find it a little bit contradictory. Marty, you know, first we had Afghanistan and now we have Haiti. And this is, you know, the second humanitarian crisis the Biden administration has faced in recent months. What has President Biden's strategy been up to this point and how can we expect it to change? That's a great question. I think what we've seen is the Biden administration trying to be true to some of the promises and the principles that President Biden ran on and that he himself has believed. And that includes things like pulling out of Afghanistan. It does include a more holistic border approach or immigration approach and trying to get at root causes of migration. And then sort of those policies running into the reality of both the resources that we've talked about, but also situations outside their control and frankly, not adapting very quickly to those circumstances. So we've seen this administration play what I see as a lot of catch up. So on the Afghanistan front, which we've talked about previously, you know, they did once the government fell and there was the need to, to, to move people out, they moved very quickly to evacuate 120 plus thousand people. They did manage to increase the refugee cap here in the United States to take in many of those refugees here and also bring in more refugees from around the world to be resettled. But it took that crisis and it took a few tries for them to get to that point. Similarly, on immigration issues, you know, it took it has taken this kind of crisis and this and the publicity that's come around it for them to move more quickly to adopt what I think would have been policies that they wanted to get to anyways, reforming some of those systems and trying to increase the capacity of, of DHS. They, for example, took a really important action just in the last few days to refocus their domestic immigration enforcement um, away from trying to round up undocumented migrants at workplaces because they are illegally employed and instead focus on consequences uh, for the employers who are illegally employing them. And so trying to trying to refocus on where the real bad actors are in those situations. So they're taking some welcome steps. It's just taken longer than it should. And it's been more reactive than ideally it would be. Errol, your thoughts? I think the Biden-Harris administration is the first administration in a really long time to to fully internalize the fact that the United States cannot do everything everywhere for everyone. And I think some of the actions that you are seeing are related to that sober realization. Afghanistan, certainly, uh, as Marty mentioned, the president has long held that we needed to get out of Afghanistan from a military perspective. And I would like to believe that they knew about what the consequences were going to be. There's a lot of smart people in the administration and they probably knew and they they made the really, again, sober calculus to do it anyways. I think on the Haiti situation, I would first of all associate with myself with everything Marty said about the 2000 people who were returned to Haiti, especially in terms of the shoot yourself in the foot aspect of of Marty's comments. And I think this is where the Biden-Harris administration is not always getting it right. There was another instance, uh, Andrew, early on in the administration where they wanted to keep the the cap on refugee resettlement at 15,000, which was the historic low that the Trump administration had in their last year. 
and they, they announced this on a Friday and just thought that it would be, everybody would be cool with it. And there was a complete uproar. Well, unlike the previous administration, they did actually course correct. And so one would like to think that in this case, the usage of something like Title 42, which is the public health related deportation mechanism that you talked about, Andrew, the backlash against the utilization of that, I think they're paying attention to that. The backlash against the Border Patrol agents and and their actions uh, are certainly getting a lot of attention within the administration. I don't think that they're going to get it right, and and I think it's it's high time for them to to start getting things more right. But I think that they have been so reactive to humanitarian disasters that they haven't really been able to to do the full shift to being proactive like we talked about yet. To both of you, climate migration is here. What actions should be taken to address climate migration in both the short and long term? The issue in Central America, since that's the one that we keep talking about in our own hemisphere, is as much about climate as it is about anything else. Marty talked about the political challenges that Haiti's facing, and that's certainly been an issue. The earthquake that happened over a decade ago certainly was a destabilizing, fragility-inducing issue in, in Haiti. But Haiti is in the line of these hurricanes that hurricanes have existed for a long time, but they have not happened as frequently and as virulently as they are. And so I'm not going to get into the science of warming waters and how that makes it, you know, harder and and more frequent for for people in the line of hurricanes, but that's that's a reality. And so in the middle of a pandemic last December, you had Central America, primarily Honduras and Guatemala, get hit by two back-to-back, just Category 5, really devastating hurricanes, and not attributing that in some way to the impact of climate change is silly. I think the challenge here, Andrew, is that when you talk to a climate scientist, she won't say climate change caused this to happen, and therefore you can provide all the support to this person. Climate scientists talk in terms of contribution to, and, you know, it's X percent likely that climate change contributed to this event. Well, that doesn't help when you're talking about policy. Like, how are we going to put someone into this bucket versus that bucket? And so it's not as easy as we would like it to be. Like, climate change does not necessarily displace very many people because climate change contributes to pretty much everything. And how can you assign direct causality to that? And so I think that's that's where we are in terms of, of the challenge. I've got some thoughts on what we can do, but Marty, I'd love your, your thoughts on this too. The only thing I would add to what Errol said is just that this reinforces the point that foreign policy issues that used to be quite siloed, human rights, climate change, national security, they can't be siloed anymore. They are all interrelated and they are all interdependent. And the border crisis is the perfect example of, of that intersection. And I think that's something the Biden administration does understand, at least on, on paper, that we need a foreign policy that approaches those issues comprehensively and doesn't silo them. And I think that the key is going to be 
um, getting the people in the U.S. government who work on those issues to work together to develop comprehensive strategies that can tackle the root causes of migration, which do, as Errol said, include climate change and environmental related issues, while also tackling our own human rights obligations, both overseas and here in the United States, and who can powerfully explain how those things impact our own national security and our own ability to control our borders and our population. And so, you know, I think that's the message that I take away from all of this is that we just need that kind of that comprehensive integrated approach. That's a really great point. Does the administration get that? Does the Congress get that? Is that something that I know it's something you're going to be, you know, recommending, but are they prepared to internalize that concept? I think we're starting to see that through, you know, the Biden administration's elevation of climate as an issue across government, having high level climate coordinators, both for domestic policy and for foreign policy. And, you know, certainly what they're talking about on human rights and democracy as a, a cornerstone of our foreign policy suggests that they intend to to treat these issues holistically. I think one thing we need to be very concerned about is avoiding the perception that those two issues can are in conflict with each other. And we saw a little bit of that debate happen, for example, when the United States took action to block goods coming from the Xinjiang region of China because of forced labor, and particularly to ban solar panels produced there. And we saw some pretty intense debates around meeting our climate goals, including by expanding our use of solar power and meeting our human rights and, and democracy responsibilities by not doing so with forced labor and slave labor. There's a risk of setting that up, those two concepts up against each other, when in fact they are they are extremely complementary. We can't build a more sustainable climate on the backs of slave labor. Um, in the case of the solar panels, one of the reasons we import so many from China and that they are so cheap isn't just slave labor. It's because of coal-fired power plants that are running those factories. And so they're not as clean as we think they are. So I think we just need to be very careful when we think about the human rights impacts of climate to think about them holistically. And I think we're starting to see some encouraging signs, but we need to really to keep up that pressure. Yeah. Errol, would you jump in on this? Definitely. I, I think on the climate migration piece specifically, I do think that the Biden-Harris administration has certainly a more nuanced understanding of the intersectionality of these issues than I would say probably the last administration and maybe even the administration before. It's it's almost like they have taken the time to understand that these issues are are not siloed and and you know, while folks were out of government, they probably were doing research at think tanks and other places where they were trying to figure out what that nuance looks like. And so the result of that, Andrew, is that at the beginning of the Biden-Harris administration, you had all sorts of climate-related executive orders, and one of them specifically talked about climate migration and commissioned a report that should be out any day now about what a U.S. administration can actually do about it. And so that that report should talk about some of the issues that we've talked about here, root causes, how to assign causality, what to do about people who are are forcibly displaced as it relates to climate change and and we'll see whether that has whether that has an impact on policy and and procedures and programs across the US government. I want to thank both of you for helping us get to the truth of the matter about human rights migration 
And these issues, as you pointed out, can't be siloed. Thank you both, Errol Yeboke and Marty Flax, very much for being with us here today. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Andrew. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 